0: Do a people's history of violence, the podcast where we go, where well, we do deep dives into assassinations, affairs, crimes, coups, conspiracies, cover-ups, terrors, trials. I was trying to do a, a James Elroy mm. riff on that for a second, where he's yeah. like, "Hello, panty sniffers, yeah. pens. Why did why are pens in that rant?
1: Well, I think pedants are important to like, the Elroy like
0: way of life. Like in his cold open rant, there's like like peepers, like people who peep yeah. in windows, panty sniffers, perverts, and then there's just like pens."
1: Yeah, you know, I think uh, part of his whole thing is kind of bebop free association so, you know. Uh,
0: and maybe, maybe that's like a deep perversion for him. It might be. Being a pedant. Well, uh, he certainly has some among his audience. Hello, listeners. Welcome back. Happy New Year. Happy 2023, hopefully. What are we talking about today, Peter? We are talking
1: about uh, the single worst act of mass murder of Americans before 9-11 which uh kind of kind of killing that uh that happy beat I started well (laughs) that's the nature the nature of this podcast it's a it's a podcast about bad things 270 people killed 190 of them Americans one day in 1988 in the sky over Lockerbie Scotland
0: that's right so uh, recently just this December the federal government the United States federal government extradited or really extraordinarily renditioned mm. they took a guy
2: yeah
0: uh arrested and arraigned him in federal court in Washington DC that was December 12th I think they did that the 71 year old man Abu Aguila Muhammad Masood al-Marimi uh who we will just refer to here as Masood In some other sources they use his uh his kind of first to the first two articles of his name abu agila we're going to use massoud so they accuse him of building a bomb on behalf of the libyan government and exploding a plane or playing that part in exploding the plane pan am flight 103 over Lockerbie, scotland in 1988 and today peter i think uh I've done a fair bit of research on this more than I, I thought I would do partly because I found it strange that this was just referred to in the news media as oh yeah we we got this guy he did this terrorist act mm-hmm. and uh you haven't even heard of it right. since
1: right I mean to the extent that we think much about Lockerbie at all here in the U.S it's kind of been overshadowed by other terrorist attacks like 9-11. We think of it as part of this era of '70s and '80s international terrorism, often targeting uh, air travel and other international travel modalities like cruise ships, undertaken by a kind of uh, vaguely uh, leftist slash Islamist coterie of bad guys, and lead among them uh, Muammar al-Qaddafi of Libya and his government. Right, as like
0: the supervillain. Yeah. Of the bunch it even works its way into 1980s fiction. I remember mm. at the beginning of Watchmen, you know, there's the theories on like that the comedian got killed in a job by the Libyans. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so on. It works its way into Back to the Future. Tommy.
2: hard, Marty. Who? Who? Who do you think? The Libyans?
1: Right. So so Locker, the locker be bombing, obviously the plane was downed over Scotland. So UK authorities were involved in the investigation. The people killed were mostly Americans, so American authorities were involved in the investigation. The two sides of the investigation did not come up with sufficiently divergent stories to really make a difference in terms of how they go about trying to seek justice for this matter. But as Isaac uh, and I have discovered there is somewhat of a difference in terms of the consent level of consensus over whether the Libyans mounted this attack or not.
0: Right. Whether they, they mounted it at all. And the interesting thing about this case, I mean, one of the many interesting things about this just very weird case uh, that you would think would be one of very hard evidence and obvious implications and obvious bombers, because frankly, that's the way most terrorist acts are, Mm. right? A a massive violent event is committed for uh, a kind of a public purpose, right, right? to either send a message or as part of a, a military campaign of sorts. Right. And they're, they're usually not that sneaky. And instead, this one was a mystery, which for the first few years had entirely different suspects with very hard evidence against them, seemingly. So we're going to unpack this. And this episode, I expect, will be a kind of an introduction, and overview episode of all of the facts and doubts that we will attempt to kind of tactfully unfurl through here and uh, really kind of just make our listeners understand the strange contradictions and convoluted qualities of this case because even though the federal government has now charged Massoud in a federal court and Massoud is uh, almost certainly a you know a, was at one time a high level mm-hmm. Libyan intelligence operative who built bombs yes the suspicion that appears to fall on him, whether it goes beyond if the Libyans did a bomb, he would be the bomb guy, right? is a very contradictory debated matter. And I, I certainly don't want to imply uh, for any, and I doubt any if our listeners, are relatives, mm-hmm. in, involved in this event, but if this was to somehow reach them, this isn't in any way trying to take away from the, the pain and injustice right. they must have felt to this prosecution. but. I think it's worth a public inquiry, mm-hmm. um, in, including by complete amateurs like us, as to what evidence exists out there uh, that's supposed to sustain the prosecution here.
1: Right. And it's not like if they didn't turn out to be behind the Lockerbie bombing that Gaddafi or his spies were were good guys. That's not what we're trying to argue. You know, you, you that, that's it. Thing in contemporary discussion that we kind of want to work against, I think, or at least I do, and we'll see if Isaac does. The idea that if you're not a bad guy, you must be a good guy, and if you're not a good guy, you must be a bad guy. There can be more than one bad guy or good guy in a story, and really, a lot of the times, it's not particularly relevant.
0: Well, Peter, at least one of us here has read the Green Book and understands the philosophy and things of Muammar Gaddafi, yeah, and how after overthrowing mm-hmm. King Idris. He really he really opened up a door for all of us to walk through if we have the into courage. that into that age into the dramapoia yeah mm. but sadly uh some people didn't walk through it and are, are you know persecuting completely innocently mm,
2: yeah. no
0: no I'm not saying that but the, you know as we said in the episodes before uh when you frame up someone or uh you prosecute the wrong person it's not a question simply of whether they're a good or bad guy. But whether you have let someone go who didn't act, right. and maybe, and I, I, think this might be the larger narrative point to make here about all this is: does the narrative that's constructed by the prosecution, which is Muammar Gaddafi, in a kind of uh, vengeful uh, attack, uh, uh, almost self-interested, egoistic revenge attack against the United States, did he kill snuff out the lives? of, you know, 190 Americans in revenge for the US bombing his house, mm. which the narrative also conveniently leaves out various skirmishes and stuff before that. But that's the narrative constructed by this, whereas, and I will present here, the narrative that existed before was, was this a contract job well known mm. among diplomats taken up by disaffected and otherwise uh, seemingly unemployable uh Palestinian faction the pflp gc Mm. which is kind of hosted by syria supplied by them but taking up a contract from iran in as a kind of a a price tag retaliation for when the u.s Mm -hmm. blew up a plane full of innocent iranians right on 270 iranians from iran air flight 655 that was the narrative before it's not one that allows the u.s government to walk away with clean hands. Uh, mm. So maybe that's the larger narrative here, but let's go ahead and start diving into uh, the evidence. So as I said before, Mr. Massoud uh, has been arraigned in federal court, but there were prior trials and prosecutions of members of the Libyan government. In the late 90s and early 2000s, the Libyan government made an agreement. This was kind of uh, mediated by Nelson Mandela and Archbishop Desmond Tutu, uh, made an agreement to allow Two Libyan citizens to be uh, arraigned and tried in this kind of special proceeding in Camp Zeist in the Netherlands. It was two people, Abdel Basat al Magrahi and La, uh, Lamin Khalifa Fima. And they were tried in this kind of neutral ground of Camp Zeist. Uh, and al Magrahi was found guilty of taking part in a conspiracy to uh, perpetrate the Lockerbie bombing. And FEMA, in a really strange and contradictory slip decision, was found to be not guilty. Mm. And some of our more panantic listeners might say, well, you know, in in Scottish law, you can have proven and not proven and mm. not guilty. Maybe it was just not proven wrong, because mm. this was actually a Scottish law trial. Uh-huh. They had the Scots judges. They were wearing wigs and, and, all. and everything. Yeah, and they had the choice to go ahead and find FEMA, not the case against FEMA, not proven, they found him not guilty, despite the fact that mm-hmm. the evidence against Megrahi kind of necessitates a role for FIMA if it's mm-hmm. going to work at all. Now, al magrahi actually maintained his innocence and hoped that his family would clear his name after his death. The UN observer at the trial, the UN legal observer, an uh, advocate called Hans Kochler, found that the trial uh and you know he wrote an extensive report to the UN he found that to be a miscarriage of justice it was an unfair irrational unreasonable trial he said and this was actually corroborated by the legal professor in Scotland who designed the trials format Mm -hmm. my name Robert Black who maintains a blog to this day that I found because it's a little bit hard to find it's just a like a blog spot right yeah uh but he uh, he maintains it now My introduction to this case actually was from a British journalist, uh, the late British journalist, actually, Paul Foote, Mm. uh, who's a real inspiration for me on this podcast. Paul Foote was a socialist journalist who had a passion for writing about the minutiae of miscarriages of justice Mm. and what he saw as miscarriages of justice. And... From the beginning of the Lockerbie case before anyone was charged, he was pointing out these contradictions in how the case shifted from suspecting that this was a contract taken up by the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, dash General Command, or PFLPGC, to this narrative that Muammar Gaddafi, James Bond villain style, had sponsored this terrorist attack. Now, more recently, new evidence has been brought to light mm-hmm. uh, to point the finger more at the Libyans uh, by a guy named Ken Dornstein, a documentarian whose older brother David died in the bombing. And he brought up a couple pieces of evidence that, that cast more suspicion against Megrahi and kind of helped build the case against Massoud. Uh, but I think they should be considered very carefully, and I'll explain mm. why
1: yeah so already we have multiple competing theories various groups and individuals involved so to try to get some clarity why don't we go through like the actual facts of the case that we
0: know yeah and let's start out of course with what happened yes so on December 21st 1988 uh Pan Am Flight 103 that's Pan American Airways now defunct but at that time it was the American airline American Airlines itself was kind of a, mm-hmm. uh, a not not a regional airline but definitely a smaller one Pan American was the flag carrier it was a gigantic plane uh by today's standards four seven 747-400 I doubt there's ab listening to this but just to understand what is what I mean by this being a gigantic plane a 747 has a double deck if you look at it from the outside this huge plane goes back and it has kind of a camel hump on the mm-hmm. front and the nose itself is so large that it's usually emptied out and used for either for cargo or to have like a separate huge first class cabin. Mm-hmm. The, the top end of this, you know, in the heyday of American air travel, was often used to have like a lounge, a mm. piano bar, a mm. restaurant. Yeah, you know, and uh, during the heyday of travel, when when shit was actually pretty good. Yeah. Now this route that it was on specifically London Heathrow to New York JFK, and then actually onwards to Detroit, so it could get maintenance and stuff done. That is the busiest route, the most heavily trafficked, the highest money route in mm. the entire world. Mm. So. You have a huge plane on the biggest route in the entire world during Christmas season. You know, usually it is more than half empty. Mm. Uh, This turns out to have been because diplomatic channels, specifically at U.S. embassies in places like Helsinki, Finland, and I believe Paris as well, were broadcasting that none of their people should go on Pan Am flights this season Mm. because they have been alerted that a terrorist group has threatened to attack them. This was some kind of leak that they gotten. And specifically, it was named as the PFLPGC.
1: And nobody thought to alert the public.
0: No one alerted the public. And not only did no one alert the public, but. Or Pan Am. Pan Am knew. Okay. Um, Pan Am knew. Incidentally, a lot of other non Americans knew. Uh, mm-hmm. Multiple members of the uh, both apartheid oh, <laughs> were scheduled cool. to be okay. on the plane and did not. And, and the thing is, you, you get into a little bit of this of, like, who was on the plane and who was not. It gets into kind of, like, wild speculation, yeah. like, like, who didn't show up for work on 9-11, something uh-huh. like that. But the thing is, is, like, there were warnings, and the fact is, is that that London to New York route is, especially during Christmas, so people are leaving at the end of their work schedule, is going to be full of VIPs, mm-hmm. it's going to be full of very wealthy people mm-hmm. uh incidentally it also you know this is the late 80s it has drug trafficking on oh, it, yeah. and that doesn't necessarily have to do with why it was bombed mm-hmm. but uh in this case it was half empty because of that warning and a lot of travel agencies and ticket booking companies specifically the caterly students doing their semester abroad in europe uh started yeah posting tickets posting notices and putting out yeah deeply discounted impossible to find tickets. And that's how actually a, a young student, Flora Swire, daughter of uh Dr. James Swire, ended up on the plane. The plane was not very new, it was about 18 years old. 38 minutes after takeoff at 703 PM, there's an explosion in the car the forward cargo hold of the plane. So this is on the near the belly of the plane, but it's also near the the kind of the front. I believe and I, I don't know if it was true in this case, but the 747 they open up the nose and they load in cargo in that former mm. bay and they close up the nose that's the way to do it for FedEx planes and stuff like that but this hole was not a gigantic explosion itself I've seen the the accident investigators talk about this more like someone puncturing a balloon mm. it was a a hole of maybe like a foot to 20 inches was busted open by a bomb mm. in some kind of luggage that punctured its way through and the pressure change, the pressure differential made shockwaves go through the plane and rips open an even bigger hole. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to try not to go into too much detail on this yeah. part, but the plane essentially rips apart. Mm. Um, some passengers are actually ingested in the engines. Mm. Um, many literally fall six from six miles up Mm -hmm. from where the plane was flying all the way to scotland because it's disintegrating so high up Mm. the remains of the plane uh, including the the upper deck top which rips off are scattered over the entire width of scotland Mm. this plane was supposed to fly around where it kind of like arches upward up Mm -hmm. through scotland then across the atlantic ocean yeah touching down new york so the kind of main piece of the wreckage as it were crashes in the small scottish town of Locker, where it it kills about 11 people Hmm. injures many more um, it makes a gigantic like meteor-like crater or like kind of a scar Hmm. across the landscape and at, at that once they realize what happened although they don't initially know it was due to a bomb or a terrorist act the Scottish police uh, enact a kind of emergency response and immediately began uh, trying to bring in every single asset they can, mm-hmm. including civilian workers, and in a meticulous and, and frankly, like admirable way. And you know me; I'm I'm very critical of police mm-hmm. and like an institution and stuff like that. But I really like you have to admire on some level the the level training professionals in the car right. people to do these minute hand yeah. by hand fingertip by fingertip right. searches yeah. of Scottish grass right to bag and tag every single fragment yes. and then they entered it into a centralized computer system called mm. I know it's corny but Holmes capital letters Expert. which stands for some acronym yeah. that means That's like right.
2: cabinet system yeah
1: right well, you know, uh, we're opposed to the police's, you know, uh, uh, enforcers of the class system. We're not opposed to
0: professionalism and, you know, civil service. Right. And that's that's kind of what this really was. So moving ahead, after these fingertip-by-fingertip fingertip searches, they're able to determine that the they can literally see what parts from the luggage bay are blown up and in which direction and how how they're
1: affected when you told me about this that, that was the thing that really blew my mind was how specific a how much stuff just survived in recognizable form after falling six miles from the sky and having been exploded but also that they were able to tell as much as they can
0: yeah it was truly amazing i mean every every single piece of luggage in some form some of them are more like fragments mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. like a lot of them were just like full suitcases yeah in some form from the exploded cargo container mm-hmm. was recovered mm. somewhere in Scotland and there there are pictures of it and you can yeah. see the directions that it was exploded into mm-hmm. so the investigators determined and by the way FBI people and <clears throat> CIA people are also on scene like very quickly in this which is, it can be cast in a suspicious eye, but giving the benefit of the doubt, right. 190 Americans died. So and, uh, you know, this is, it's a member of the, what was it called, the five eyes or whatever? Yeah. Six, seven, wait, it's one of the <laughs> Anyways, yeah. so the investigation determines that the actual explosion came from, and they were able to tell this from the, the fragments that are left behind, a brown or maroon colored Samsonite silhouette, 4,000, they know the model a suitcase. And inside that case, and they can tell this from, again, fragments, burn marks, because frankly, like like I said, this was not a big bomb. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the stuff that's around it is not that damaged. The stuff that's in it is really damaged mm-hmm. by explosives. The case contained clothing inside it, seven items of clothing, I believe, and an umbrella mm-hmm. which was recovered in another place that they were able to check the tags for and in good investigative fashion, fashion, the Scottish investigators, the FBI investigators, went to the manufacturer and said, hey, this type of, manufacturing, this type of clothing, are you able to determine when it was sold? And they said, yes, they, there was a batch number on it, basically. Mm-hmm. And they could tell that this batch, these clothes were shipped to a specific shop in Malta called Mary's House. Mm. Now, that will become pretty important for the investigation going forward but the suitcase was placed in a container that was specifically for uh interline transfers Mm -hmm. of luggage and at a position that was that was placed close to the fuselage and that becomes important as well and possibly misleading as well interline of course is when you you know I'm sure a lot of our listeners experiences when you take a flight that has a connection Mm -hmm. uh, and you check a bag so you go like from Miami to Dallas to Los Angeles, for example, at Dallas, your bag is going to be transferred without you doing anything from the plane that you came in on to the next plane that you're going off of. And that's called interline yes. luggage transfer. Well, on this flight, some luggage bags, I think it's about 13 pieces, were transferred from a small feeder flight in Frankfurt, mm-hmm. Germany, to the Pan Am 103 flight.
2: Uh, and from other
0: flights onto the Panama 103 flight. And that was the container in which this maroon brown suitcase was in. Mm. They could also tell from fragments that were inside the suitcase that specifically a Semtex explosive was put inside a model RTSF-16 Toshiba radio, mm-hmm. which in... Uh, is this even fucking irony at this point right. the radio model was called bomb beat
2: yeah
0: trademark mm. of Toshiba radio which was, I I almost feel like was just like a like
1: <laughs> I wonder if they kept on the, the part of the yeah. Did the they bomb. keep manufacturing that model after I wonder
0: they must have at least changed the name right oh dope. yeah I the thing is too is that this wasn't a big radio yeah I, I, I made a little like shitty yeah diagram. yeah he's holding <laughs> up some,
1: some some butcher paper He's drawn a rectangle on it that shows, you know, a not very large rectangle uh, This uh, what would be the size of this radio. Believe us, this is what's happening.
0: So pieces of the manual for the Toshiba radio inside that suitcase that contained the bomb were also inside, which makes it think that the, it probably was like bomb was put inside radio and then put back inside its box before being put in the suitcase. If it still has the manual. Now, very quickly in the investigation, not just uh, the Scottish authorities, but uh, the German police, Israeli intelligence, and uh, the United States FBI and CIA, and they all talk about this in their documents, they believed just as a matter of fact that the PFLPGC had or members of it had done this bombing. Ahmed Jabril, the leader of the PFL PGC residing Syria at this time, had taken up a contract according to their intelligence sources, who are, of course, like, people that they have burrowed in the PFLPGC or various branches and also, like, intercepted communications and stuff. Maybe it would be worth talking a little bit about the PFLPGC.
1: Yeah, the PFLPGC. So some of you might know of the PFLP, uh, which is sort of one of the original, not, not necessarily original, but one of that wave of groups of Uh, Palestinian militant groups that arose in the 60s and 70s uh, to fight the Israeli occupation. It was one of, I believe, the charter members of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, along with Fatah, but had sort of a different approach, different politics to Fatah. Founded, actually, and many people don't uh, realize that there are, in fact, many Palestinian Christians. Uh, They're not all Muslims. uh, Founded by a Palestinian Christian named George Habash. Dr. George Dr. George Hibosh. Hibosh. That's right. He founded the um popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, if I remember the acronym properly. Uh, and he he gained a reputation. Their group gained a reputation uh, as being fearsome fighters, um pioneers of targeting airlines, which is part of this strategy that speaking as somebody who studied insurgency and counterinsurgency. At the graduate level is a little opaque to me i get what they say about it which is that you know groups like pflp hijacked planes and uh, mounted these public terror attacks because they wanted to get attention for the palestinian cause well, i mean it's worth
0: unpacking like what we mean when we say they targeted a plane because it's one way to target. It, it means one thing to target a plane say with a like and with, the, a, with a bomb and, and blowing up people inside yeah. it to cause terror on the airlines it's another thing to take over a plane and then right. you're they they used it frequently to basically get yes get their a,
1: people uh, out of jail
0: so yeah. that had a more like
1: strategic and money <laughs> money and what have you so there was some strategic basis to it um and it's also worth noting that in that there is some truth to the fact that before this stuff started happening really nobody paid attention to what was happening to the Palestinians no no the various uh Arab kingdoms and and uh republics all claimed to have sympathy for the palestinians though most of them did not in any meaningful sense and resented having refugees uh these groups like pflp wound up actually fighting groups like the jordanian what wound up fighting governments like the jordanian government and the lebanese government pretty frequently yeah, but
0: specifically uh kingdom of jordan more yes, or less tried to massacre, massacre them out
2: Yes, um, September,
0: and, and uh, the PFLP, uh, pre GC, in particular, uh, and I mean the the PFLP was definitely a a, a kind of a, a saw themselves as a part and were completely accepted as a part of this entire seventies globe traveling guerrilla milieu. Um, they had members of the Red Army faction training in their camps at one point
1: yeah they the, so they they had this internationalist thing going on they saw themselves as kind of fighting for the oppressed more broadly along with fighting for Palestine now like you know leftist groups and terror groups in general including right-wing ones are given to splits and uh successful models are given to imitators uh so I believe they were parts part of pflp there were several splits one of which became pflp gc i believe the gc is for general command
0: yeah and the jabril group i mean jabril always resent uh if by a lot of accounts really resented the and control he saw by pf of of the pflp by educated largely christian Palestinians. Uh jabril tried to appeal to uh more the rougher people who were yeah. coming up and growing up in the refugee camps right. of the Palestinian force diaspora right after the Nakba the catastrophe yes. of Israel's expulsion of the Palestinians from the uh, territories that we now know as Israel and the occupied territories right
1: so you had these various split-offs and it was it there were various parties to conflicts in the area found it convenient to put to sort of invest in some of these groups and have them be sort of their Palestinian terror groups that they could you know get to do stuff for them on the slide and PFLP PFLPGC like we said was largely supported by Syria. Syria under uh the Assads um was well known uh for playing these games with numerous different kinds of groups throughout the Middle East and beyond you know, funding these little uh, terror groups and militias and what have you uh, as deniable assets uh, to expand its range and its power. Yeah,
0: I, I think it could be said that, you know, we, we're using the word terrorism to kind of refer to any, and we're trying to use it in a, in a, in a I want to say like a clinical way rather than the uh, the polemical way, which is usually used as to be any action that is meant to in, inspire a kind of uh, public terror disproportionate to like whatever military or strategic value uh it might have but the PFLPGC by the time we reach them in the late 80s is a very much a group of uh well most of them don't have real jobs I'll put it that way they are uh sorry most of them don't have real jobs having taken up this kind of professional struggle and more or less work under contract a lot of the, like a lot of the ideology of the 70s of internationalism of a secular palestine and so on that may have been inherited partly from the PFLP uh was largely sacrificed here yeah. um uh, by the fact that they needed sponsors and they needed people to get paid and be moving around. Right. Uh, as Douglas Boyd points out in, in one of our source books here, uh, Lockerbie, the Truth, although we don't uncritically accept Douglas Boyd's analysis of the situation, mm-hmm. he, he points out uh, terrorism, as as he calls it, is an expensive business. Yes. And it, the, it's not easy to maintain this kind of a standing army of people.
1: Right. And there's long been sort of uh, a, a porous boundaries. Between ideologically motivated uh, fighters who do illegal things, and then criminals who do illegal things for money primarily, and intelligence services who do illegal things on the benefit of the state. I mean, at least sometimes it, it has been these, what would have been called terrorist groups, who later formed the core of intelligence services for certain countries, like. Israel yeah um and proved to be very effective uh you know Mossad is uh well you know they seem to be maybe less so of late but they were a very effective group um very effective intelligence agency based off these these groups um you know various uh, Armenian groups uh formed wound up being kind of assets for I Arme- not that you know historical Armenia event you know got absorbed by the Soviet Union so it didn't last too long um so on and so forth so this kind of thing happens is the point there's always uh this kind of slippage going on and I mean uh you know we might wind up doing an episode about this at some point but I mean look at how American special forces operators are turning to traditional organized crime if you pay attention to certain areas of the news
0: yeah I'm just gonna keep calling it until it turns out to be uh to be the truth because I just I feel like they're doing jobs yeah. I'll I'll put it that way. In and I mean jobs in the uh the James Elroy Michael Man sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, uh so I mentioned earlier that the suspicion, which was literally just taken to be fact uh by the CIA, FBI, Scottish authorities, home office, pretty much everyone was that this the PFLPGC was contracted to do this, and they had very strong evidentiary reasons for thinking this, but it's worth talking about what the contract was for. Earlier that year, in 1988, Iran Air Flight 655 was flying from Tehran on essentially a Hajj journey, so it would eventually end up in Saudi Arabia, but it was flying from Tehran to Dubai as its first stop, and it never made it to Dubai. And crossing over uh, that tiny inland, the Persian Gulf, and encountered the USS Vincennes. It was not flying over the Vincennes, mind you. Mm-hmm. It was just it popped up on the Vincennes radar. Radar, and the official, very shaky, um, pretty much obviously false story is that the Vincennes radar crew, who had the most advanced radar in the entire United States Navy at that time, the most technologically sophisticated navy. Is in that
1: just like uh, an more. interest cruiser? Yeah, it's a destroyer. I can't remember.
0: Well, anyway, so with the most advanced uh, technology, the U.S. Navy at the time uh, supposedly thought that this large uh, hundreds of people carrying Airbus commercial plane, which was ascending and climbing, uh, was actually a Tomcat fighter jet, like from Top Gun, Hmm. that was descending and was coming on an attack course on them as they were engaging uh, several Iranian gunboats. In addition to that, uh, they cruised into Iranian waters, like mm-hmm. undisputably, mm-hmm. on what pretty much is understood by a, as a kind of harassing or nuisance mission by the commander of the Vincennes. And then the crew unleashed uh, this single missile, which, of course, blew the plane out of the sky, killing all on board. The Iranians, of course, attempted to get the UN intervene and filed numerous complaints in public statements they they said they would have revenge they later you know not walked back but no longer referred to revenge in public statements but it was understood that they were going to get some kind of compensation Mm -hmm. or punishment yeah what's normally referred to as like a terrorist like price tag yeah attack for what was an act of terrorism in their view Like right
1: and I you know by unless it was a very unlikely accident in which case the U.S. should have done something more than it did the Vincent by the way is a cruiser uh, or it was decommissioned 2005. yeah well I'm I'm just I'm
0: just celebrating
2: that we know yeah it (laughs) was
1: equipped with the Aegis system right that was uh, supposed to be what would protect us from you know missiles and stuff so between the two of us I mean one yeah, of be kind right? of there. There. yeah. that's uh, why there's two of us because we can't get things
0: right on our own uh to add insult to injury the commander of the Vincent and the others on board were given medals of course awesome. for you know their courage under fire cool. The For just Christ. taking out the threat of a uh, oh, the ship was... passenger plane full of people going on a religious pilgrimage.
1: Right. The sponsor of the ship was, because uh, they sponsor Navy ships, so was Marilyn Quayle,
0: wife of Dan Quayle, who 90s kids know. Can't throw potato piece of shit. Yeah. Anyways, what led them to think that the, the investigators to think that it was the PFLPGC who had taken up this contract, as opposed to, say, you know, like some Libyans or another group, was their investigation of a cell of PFLPGC members in the German town of Neuss, N-E-U-S-S. Neuss, it's, it's pretty close to Dusseldorf, one of the closest major say. Um, but several of these PFLPGC members have been operating out of there. They had recently been activated by a, I guess you'd call him a, a local commander called Hafez Dalkamoni. And they were also associated with a guy who was kind of in the PFLPGC and kind of in his own group called Abu Tal, which kind of shows you like how porous and mercenary these groups have become by the time we get to the late 80s, you know, far from the heyday of guerrilla 1970s. You know? mm-hmm. One of the members of this cell, however, was a guy named Marwan Chrisat, who was an expert bomb maker. He was also, in addition to being a member of the PFLBGC, a Jordanian intelligence agent. Not mm. asset, mind you, but by that point, agent. Mm. Uh Chrisat was thought to be responsible for a altometer-activated blowing up of a Al Al plane in 1970, hmm. and uh, he later on confirmed this when he decided to make a Facebook account in the ah. 2010s, where he celebrated doing it. Yeah, anyway, as one does. Uh, yeah, I mean, so so so, was, so this Jordanian so
1: dis- intelligence guy was in with the PFLP GC in Europe.
0: Yeah, but of course, Jordanian intelligence is not is essentially using him as like a kind of investigative spot. Yes. Yeah, they're trying to do something with BFLBG. I mean, among other,
1: provocateur things, or, among, other, among other things, Jordan
0: and Syria don't always get along. So. Yeah. so whether they're using him as a provocateur or a kind of a, as a sting operation, they have him in there. And he's also kind of seconded as an agent hmm. to the Central Intelligence Agency. Ah. And there are the CIA in Bonn in Germany is aware of Chrissat and knows he's an asset. So he's at least a triple agent. He's at least a double agent. Okay. We don't know if he's, actually, I guess he's a triple. Agent. Is
1: he in with the CIA? Does the CIA actually use him for stuff?
0: Yes, but kind of okay. in harmony with George. So right.
1: he's kind
0: of on loan. Yes. Okay. Now, whether he's a triple agent right. for the PFLPGC again. Right. Or that, feeding
1: stuff to the CIA that he shouldn't be feeding them.
0: Yeah, that's a that's kind of an open question. Mm-hmm. Now, in that year, in October of 1988, the German police The BKU have an operation called Autumn Raids to take out the new cell, essentially. They managed to capture Chrisat and others red-handed. Chrisat has a bomb in his car, along with various other weapons, inside a Toshiba Bomb Beat radio. The preferred preferred brand. Now, this was before the Lockerbie bombing, which was in, remember, a Toshiba Bomb Beat radio quite a very very specific modus operandi now they have been surveilling Cressat for weeks they had wiretaps on him. they knew he was buying timers they knew Mm -hmm. he was buying various shops and building these bombs they also even recorded a phone call where he called in I believe through a site Cypriot intermediary to Mm -hmm. Syria to say that he's improved the recipe it's going to be much bigger and better Mm -hmm. now this bomb inside the Toshiba bomb beat was uh, a Semtex explosive Mm -hmm. that's a Czech manufactured explosive kind of like the Czech counterpart to C4
2: RDX
0: and I think it's PETN. orange explosive easily moldable kind of like Mm Play-Doh inside an explosive and he had a crammed in a canister and the timing mechanism is the kind of important part here because in Krasat's bomb the Semtex was wired to a timer and a barometric pressure device. Mm -hmm. So when the pressure drops to a certain point around the device, it would measure that it would start a 30 minute timer. Mm -hmm. The German police interviewed Crissat again, well, Mm -hmm. not the German police, but Crissat was interviewed again after the Lockerbie bombing uh, by Jordanian authorities who relayed the information to the German police, because mm-hmm. they said, uh, it seems like it might be a Toshiba Bomb bomb on the Lockerbie plane. croissant relayed that he had actually made five of these radio concealed devices. Mm-hmm. And he said, let the police know that three of them were in his old apartment. At first, they were kind of disbelieving this. They thought they had gotten everything in the apartment. So he let them know his various hiding places. And they found, indeed, two, sorry, three other bombs in that apartment Mm -hmm. Uh, one of them I think was hidden inside a TV set all of these were barometric pressure activated why that's important is it means they were used meant for planes yes so all
1: the all that evidence they found about the bomb from you know all that that stuff the the debris scattered all over Scotland did they have any evidence of the timing and detonation mechanism of the ball
0: Yeah. So this kind of came out later on at the trial at Camp Zeist. Mm-hmm. But if it was a pressure-activated timing device that was used at Lockerbie, mm-hmm. that was like that that they recovered from Marlon Chrisot, mm-hmm. then it would have hit that uh required pressure drop at about eight minutes uh-huh. after the plane had taken off. Yeah. And which would have started a thirty-minute timer, yeah. and you would arrive at exactly right. 38 minutes okay and dr Jim Swire actually emphasizes this repeatedly he says it was obviously right. a pressure activated device which becomes important because the official government case from the u.s government is that this was not a barometric pressure activated device it was just a it was just clock yeah, it sorry. just happened to get on this specific time of 38 minutes yeah so uh croissant however if you're counting bombs here Says that he made five bombs. Mm-hmm. One of them was recovered in the car with him. Three of them were found in his apartment. Actually, a, a German bomb squad team, uh, one of them died disarming one of oh, his man. trapped trap bombs. They were very sophisticated devices, uh, which leaves one bomb. And Chrisat then began giving contradictory stories about what happened to this bomb. Uh, he at first said that uh, a member of their cell who was not arrested. Abu Elias basically told him to go in the other room and then like he was gone when he came back and walked away with the dice. And then he improved his story a little bit and said that actually he just taught Abu Elias how to make these types of bombs. So maybe Abu Elias did it all himself. In other words, is is giving a kind of a story so as to uh get him out of hot water if it turns out that his handlers want to burn him for mm-hmm. building the bomb that took down the right panne- yeah three planes which it certainly looks like it is there were even leaks to the british press because there were like frankly a lot of like deliberate leaks out of this investigation mm-hmm. that they had tested parts of Chrisat's devices like the soldering mm-hmm. and parts of the recovered pieces of the Lockerbie bomb and found that they were identical. Mm. There's no paperwork existing now about this, but it certainly looked like for a while that they were going to be building a hard forensic case Mm. against the PFLBGC, the new cell, and that they had had all this sewn up, they just needed to find the where, what, and why of how they put one of these bomb beat radios on the plane. Right. Well, you
1: know, uh, airports are highly controlled spaces, so it makes sense that they would be able to do that and then go after the new cell, which I assume assume is what they did,
0: correct? So this investigation then takes a really weird turn and Mm. people give different stories about why it turned, uh, of which I'll only give a couple. One story I've heard, uh, which is recited by the FBI uh, special agent Robert Marquise, is that they noticed actually there's a total difference with the bombi Toshiba radio that they found at Lockerbie and the news devices, which is it's a stereo radio and theirs was mono, oh, no. two yeah. speakers instead of one speaker, uh, which oh. totally means they couldn't have couldn't have gotten it.
1: Yeah, the electronic stores they either sell one or the other, and there's uh, only one in every not town. Ahmed
0: Shabiril had a had a strict policy. Yeah, that two speakers in a radio, no problem.
1: Yeah, I mean it's 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 not you know mono is a superior, it's
0: more punk rock. Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of um, more respectable parts about Marquise's investigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not one of them. Yeah, frankly, uh, because also from from Marlon Chris, the bomb builder's apartment, they found stereo yeah. Toshiba bomb beat radios that he was appeared to be wire uh, in the process of wiring up to put bombs in. Yeah so that's out yeah another more believable account is that a uh a guy named uh mr jaka a libyan airlines employee mm-hmm. uh defected the cia mm-hmm. uh he maintained that he was in a member of the libyan external security organization which is kind of the libyan military intelligence and operations
2: mm-hmm. yeah way
0: outside of the country he Began giving the agencies a story, and it's kind of unclear which interviews he gave what information. That uh, a number of Libyan ESO employees and officers were involved in this plot. Uh, they were all in Malta at the relevant time. And this connects in the investigators' minds with the fact that the clothing that was inside the suitcase was purchased in Malta. Mm-hmm. So they start going along with this. Paul Foote and others make a good case that what really started happening here is that George Bush picked up the phone Mm. and called Margaret Thatcher and said, I need Syria to help me invade Iraq. Yes. So fucking cool it with all this Lockerbie shit. And
1: also Iran is a much tougher nut to crack than Libya. Yeah. If you're going to punish one or the other,
0: there were also hostages still being held by Iranian backed groups mm-hmm. at the time in Lebanon who were actually uh, released very soon after indictments went out against the Libyan conspiracy. Interesting. So, that said, this investigation totally shifts and it kind of catches the public by surprise when in 1991, our old friend, friend of the show,
1: definitely on the Christmas card list, Silbar. So
0: Bill. Bill Barr William Barr it is William Barr William Barr. There okay Bill Barr. so everyone's kind of caught by surprise when William Barr the attorney general at the time and soon to be well in the future attorney general again Once in future AG maybe he'll be attorney general again who knows oh,
2: yeah
0: yeah no father mentor to Jeffrey Epstein just pointed that out um mm-hmm. William Barr who frankly in kind of like if there ever was a Like recurring villain of the show, I think William Barr will just keep coming back. Mm. Because he is really the pioneer of a lot of dirty, yeah, dirty ways of using the prosecutorial state on Mm. like an international and imperial level.
1: Yeah.
0: Right? He is the pioneer of being like, well, I mean, international law, so why can't we just go into a country and kidnap a leader who's not playing ball? Yeah, and not? then bring him back and try him. Yeah, and if we need to, we'll just make up a case. We can use some witnesses. Yeah. yeah. So, Bill Barr announces the indictment of the aforementioned Abdel Basid al magrahi and FEMA, and the indictment kind of just kind of sits there until that until Muammar Gaddafi agrees to extradite them to Holland for this kind of special trial that's held in the Netherlands. Until that point, though, the UN, starting from 1992 onward, uh, imposed severe travel and economic sanctions on Libya, uh, which were on top of already existing European and US sanctions Mm -hmm. on Libya, not Europe-wide, that they were able to trade with certain countries. But it was pretty tough um, Mm -hmm. during the 1980s. So do you think this is a good time to talk about like, as far as the, the straightforward prosecution's case against McRahi and the Libyans.
1: Yes, but let's pause. Yes.
3: I heard only two small voices amongst the MSPs say, raise the question of, was this man guilty? And that is a question which, until it's resolved, remains a major stumbling block for those of us who want to get to the truth. Uh, behind why this disaster ever happened in the first place, who was behind it, and what the role of government was in the failure to prevent it. July 1988, that's about five months before Lockerbie, the American missile cruiser the Vincennes shot down an Iranian Airbus uh, with the resulting death of 290 Pilgrims. When the vessel got back to America, the captain, Captain Rogers, was awarded a medal for meritorious service. Iran swore uh, briefly that she would get her revenge. I believe that she got it um, at Lockerbie. I believe that she used technology belonging to a Syrian group called the PFLPGC, and indeed it was the definition of the technology belonging to that group, which I heard in the court at Zeist, which convinced me that McGrachy had nothing to do with Lockerbie because the devices that that group had were designed in such a way that they were stable indefinitely at ground level. You could put them in this building and leave them there for a month and nothing would happen. But if you put them in an airplane without any intervention whatsoever, even if they were inside a suitcase, they would always explode around 40 minutes after the plane's wheels left the Tarmac. The Lockerbie plane flew for 38 minutes. There was a break-in in the early hours of that day into Heathrow Airport. And as they say in America, I arrest my case.
0: kind of objectivity about mirror pole mindset mirror mindset steel manning all the way uh, i'm going to try to present in a concise way the case against megrahi and the libyans as came out at trial in its strongest formation before we can get into the weaknesses the gaps the contradictions and all of that so there's really kind of three or four four pillars I feel like this Spanish finishing with this. think Monty Python. the four <laughs> pillars of the case against McGrawi and FIMA at trial at Camp Zeist. And the first one is that informant uh, Giaca Giacca says that he sees McGrawi on December the 21st in the morning at the Malta airport carrying a maroon brown case, and that FIMA, his accomplice, took up the case and didn't see much more after that, but that's how it got on the plane. Malta to Frankfurt to London Heathrow to being on the plane and blowing up. And that's the prosecution's case at trial is that this bag went unaccompanied from each of those locations because some kind of surreptitious usage of baggage and transfer tags at the airport and that somehow it wasn't detected. Uh, Now, Keep in mind that Magrahi is the head of security for the state owned Libyan Airlines at the time. Now, he denied, I believe, or at least like passively denied being a member of the ESO until he died. I don't see how you could be the head of security of the state owned airline of Libya in the 1980s and not be an intelligence asset, right. like both operationally and that way. It's not because, not, not even because Libya is an evil country. Let's suppose that like Libya is like, the most, you know, as the the government rather is the most like pure as a babe innocent in the world. If you're being assaulted by as many different like forces as mm-hmm. they are, yeah. The head of your airline better be yeah. a security, yeah. otherwise it's a security risk, right? Anyways, so he he is involved in the airline. Fima, for his part, is a Libyan Airlines employee and also purportedly another ESO asset embedded within the airline. Although by the time of the bombing, he's actually not an employee. He's a former employee. Both are in Malta at the time. And Megrahi, they're able to prove, is physically present at the airport because he took a flight from Malta to Tripoli that day with a check-in that was just after that Air Malta connecting flight that would have gone to Frankfurt. So the theory there is he arrives at the airport, Fima drops off this bomb bag mm-hmm. uh, it goes through security and then check and closes for that flight and then he gets on his flight to tripoli mm-hmm. allowing himself to kind of alibi out at the time of bombing mm-hmm. or at least be far away and secure in native yes. yeah. libya the so that's one pillar and that seems mm-hmm. to be the strongest bit of direct evidence as a source saying i saw him do it he was there i saw him do the thing And also, he told me he was doing the thing. Giocco also says, like, they were planning to do it, and I knew about it. What is uh, more convincing for the court, and I'm going to present the strongest version of this again, is the fact that the clothes that were inside the suitcase were bought at a specific shop in Malta owned by a guy named Tony Gauci. And Gauci, in giving his description of the person the police, did describe him as a Libyan in a photographic lineup. And in an in, in-person lineup done later on in 1998 or 99 98, I think, uh, Gauchi identified Al Magrahi as the person who bought the clothes that went into the suitcase, and he even remembers the specific items of clothes he bought, mm. and remembers that he was speaking in some kind of Libyan-inflected accent. Mm. The last bit of evidence that really like that really sews this all up, though besides the documentation of Megrahi's presence in Malta, the testimony of Jiaka, the identification of Nia as the guy who bought the clothes that are in the bomb suitcase, Mm -hmm. is a tiny, less than one centimeter square fragment of a circuit board that was recovered in a piece of shirt Mm -hmm. found in the woods in Scotland and identified as being part of the crash record. This tiny piece of a circuit board was because of the explosive Kind of melting on it was thought to be part of the bomb the shirt was thought to be in the suitcase um, at least suspected to be there's just shirt fragments really burned up and on that particular tiny circuit board fragment microscopically one can actually even read out the part of the word mebo oh, wow m-e-b-o which was a small swiss electronics company owned by a guy named uh, Bollier, I think it's Edmund Bollier. He uh, originally, in his testimony to or in his statements to the FBI agents, uh, said that this particular fragment fit the circuit board on an MST-13 timing device, mm. which he gave to the Libyan military under contract. And gave made, or sold? Sold, sold, sorry, sorry. Um, sold for a lot of money yes. uh, to the Libyan military under contract. He actually did a, a fair amount of business with the libyan military Mm. the air force and purportedly the eso he changed his story at trial and denied that he only sold these to the libyan military he said he also sold them to the stasi the east german intelligence agency they were able to show a trial that this tiny fragment really fits quite neatly into the mst13 timing Mm -hmm. board and so the case at trial is these timing devices are unique, made by this small company and sold to Libya. And the last icing on the cake is the guy who has an office down the hall from Mr. bollier prior to the bombing, not at the time of the bombing, but like you know, years prior to the bombing, was none other than Abdelbasset al-Magrahi. Mm. So Bollier knows Magrahi, magrahi will be familiar with Bolier stuff. And while McGraw didn't build the bomb, the theory is is that he definitely was a part of the plot and delivered the bomb onto the plane with the knowledge that it would go eventually onto Pan Am 103 after going through two other flights.
1: So that's that's a fair amount. That's, that's some that's, that's some decent evidence. That's physical evidence.
0: That's you know a witness I, identifying at the airport the yeah. documentation that he he's physically present the place of the crime. He can't alibi out. And um, he's identified as as being connected to the physical evidence in the suitcase. Mm. So that's the strength of the case at trial. There's problems with all of this, uh, All right. So taking off our, our steel man hat for a mm-hmm, second, mm-hmm. Uh, why don't we start with Giacca, the guy who just says he saw him at the airport? So the judges at the Camp trial uh, threw out all of Giacca's testimony. Uh-huh. All uh huh. On the grounds. Giaka is a cia informant oh okay he gave no uh, prior corroborating statements for any of this stuff and appears to have created this statement over time and he rather openly hoped to get some of the four million dollar reward mm-hmm. um and may have actually been paid a substantial bit mm-hmm.
2: uh,
0: but in regardless of that he was given a new identity Mm-hmm. So he wouldn't have to go back to Libya after having defected. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's pretty obvious that had he gone back to Libya, he would have been tried as for espionage right. and executed. Yes. So that's a pretty big incentive. Do we, know,
1: not... do we know where they, is he like an American witness protection or? Yeah. Huh.
0: He's somewhere. Interesting. I don't know if he's still in the United States. Yeah. There's other witnesses in this case who are still in the United States and under different identities. But mm. uh, I don't know if we can even get into that in this episode. What about Tony Gauchy? Tony Gauci was – let's just start with the incentive. So Tony Gauchi's if his testimony was thrown out after Giacca's testimony was thrown out, there, mm. there wouldn't be a case. Yeah. Uh, on appeal, McGrath's attorneys point out that the only discrete act that they're able to point to as being something that McGrath did as opposed to like the Libyans. Yes. Right? Is – Buying the clothes that went in the suitcase. Mm-hmm. That's what puts him in the conspiracy. Yes. From like a very like legal patent standpoint, that's the only thing that he did, is overact. Tony Gauchi's original description back in 1989 mm-hmm. of the person who went and bought the clothes was that he was dark-skinned, tall, six feet or more, and around 50 years old. Mm-hmm. McGraw is a pretty light-skinned. Livian, mm. I mean, he's just light skin, Especially, I mean, it, 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 you see, like, shots of him, like, before he died, where he's right. pale from being sickness. But you can see shots of him around the time, and he could not be confused with the sketch that's made by Tony okay, Panetti yeah. at all. Like, this was, like, a dark-skinned guy. Tall, six feet or more, McGraw, he's, like, 5'7". seven. Mm-hmm and McGraw he was 37 at the time mm. and pretty youthful he, he, yeah. liked, he liked actually like kind of like styling around like oh, Eurofash yeah, style with yeah, yeah, yeah. suits and honest like fancy sad. sunglasses because yeah. he had a long position yeah he had a security for the entire state-owned airline he
1: was, he was a cool he was a cool terrorist dude or uh, terrorism adjacent
0: yeah I, I don't know if McGrath was involved in any terrorism be honest but uh, so he was involved he in a been. world of intrigue he was involved in a world of intrigue and espionage without a doubt which just just to really quick
1: are airlines still these hubs of intrigue to this day I think of airlines as being such quotidian like service organizations I mean not serve businesses like shitty businesses basically don't forget so to be honest if needs be. no
0: no no so so to be honest I mean airlines like other large corporations obviously like a seed to the intelligence wishes yes. of their governments yes okay uh and that happens all the time yeah as to whether they carry out like full-on like spy novel plots like yeah. they used to I feel like they kind of cut that out mostly mm. in like 90s yeah probably the worst one was when uh a, a group of in, uh Garuda Air which is Indonesia's National Airline employees uh-huh. assassinated a guy that's on wild. a plane that's wild because they also doubled this intelligence agents yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, back to back to back to Gauchi. But back to Gauchi. So Gauch- as to incentive, though, Gauchi and his brother, I, I forget his name, uh, they were wined and dined for years hmm. by investigators and to and unsurprisingly, his uh, his description improved over time to more closely match McGrahi. Mm-hmm. the description of the guy as Libyan it turns out to not be as significant at all as it turns out that I think it's the correct term is the that turns out to be a real term of art in mm-hmm. Malta for any Arabic or oh, Arabish person yeah um because of the That's large president yeah. it's kind of like how I like when I was a kid growing up in Texas like out here pretty much any Central American or South yeah. American just referred to as like Mexicans yeah yeah Uh it's a broad brush yeah so the original description doesn't really fit McGrawy at all the sketch doesn't look like McGrawy at all but McGrawy's defense team on appeal were actually able to really establish in a way that they couldn't at trial that mcgrachy couldn't have been unless something's just really wrong like some of the evidence isn't evidence, that mcgrachy couldn't have been at at Gauchi's store on the only date in which he could have been present at the store and bought those items mm-hmm. so the items mm-hmm. arrive in a store so there's a certain window yes. in which mcgrachy has to be present in malta and buy them mm-hmm. and the court determined that the only day that that could have happened like even possibly was december 7th of 1988. so if they're able to show that McGrahy, that the clothes were not bought on December 7th, 1938, sorry, 1988, then McGrahy wasn't there and he wasn't the guy. His defense team pointed out two things that Gauchi remembered from, from even from his original statement. He was pretty consistent on this as to how he remembered the day. One, he said that he remembered that when he left the shop, this was like towards the end of the day, that the town that the shop was in, in Malta, hadn't turned the Christmas lights on yet. Mm-hmm. And two is he remembered that, and this is corroborated by a piece of physical evidence that the buyer was in his shop and was kind of grabbing things. He's like, these aren't for me. Some of the stuff is like kids clothes. It's Mm. like, it's really like hasty and slapdash. Mm. He buys this stuff and then he looks and it's raining outside the shop. And so he turns back and he's like, you have umbrellas, Mm -hmm. I need to buy an umbrella. don't get you know soaked as i leave the shop yeah and so he sells an umbrella and indeed uh you know bomb exploded umbrella was recovered at locker but it appeared to come from the suitcase so Mm -hmm. this happened whoever the bomber was shoved this umbrella in the samsonite suitcase
2: yeah
0: it was not raining on 12-7 and if it wasn't raining on 12-7 when mcgrahi was in malta on the only day he could have been in gauchi's shop and bought the stuff Then he wasn't the guy. Unless Gauchi's just misremembering right. all of these parts, the description, whether it was raining, uh, the Christmas lights, which weren't turned on until December 6th.
1: Right. Or
0: well, they were turned they on. Were in, they weren't right. They, they were turned on in December 6th. You yeah. were able to find that out.
1: I mean, memory, my... memory is notoriously difficult that way, but it is pretty uh when you're trying to rely on it. Yeah. Uh, for this kind of case.
0: To add to that, uh, Gauchi told the Scottish police. Uh, after several interviews like you know am I gonna get a little bit of a reward because I kind of need it? My shop's not doing so good, yeah, and no one's ever been able to get to the bottom of this, but there's a lot of reports that suggest that he got two million dollars. Mm. That's a pretty big incentive to stick by your identification right. uh, it's more than any other reward I've seen on any other case I've ever heard of mm. Just if you if you point out this guy, you get two million dollars like a lottery ticket,
2: yeah. Mm. So
0: the circuit board fragment, of course, is the right. is the probably the, the strongest piece of physical evidence. It doesn't just point to McGraw, who has that office down mm-hmm. from the hall from Edmund Bollier. Yeah. It points to Libya. Yes. Because the original statement that Bollier said, and that's brought in at trial, is that Libya is the only people who had these timers. Mm-hmm. So Bollier is like, a universally despised figure, both by the prosecution and defense. When he, before the case, before the FBI or anyone else had actually even turned to Libyans, Bolier inserted himself into the investigation himself mm-hmm. by going into the, embassy, the U.S. Embassy in Vienna and dropping off a letter that faked being a Libyan intelligence agent, and, like, he begins the letter with, like, in the name of Allah, blah, blah, blah. blah. He's, like, a Character wow, and uh, he says he knows who the bombers are and he's willing to give them up.
1: So, would he have done that because he was worried that if they knew he was supplying these things to the Libyans, that like they would you know arrest him or mess with his business? Like, was there is there a rule against selling this kind of stuff to I mean, maybe not well, certainly
0: in being a part of a like a terrorist yeah. conspiracy? So, the yeah, like, so the FBI and the government's perspective is that Bollier was like. Oh no! I'm I'm in trouble. Yeah. I better find a way out by inserting myself in this investigation and trying to give up the goods. Yeah. The more cynical perspective is that Bollier knew he had sold timers to the Libyans, and Bollier wanted to do spot shit and make right. a lot of money. Yeah. And the documents from the FBI, and and this actually comes out in kind of a a, a pro the Libyans did a documentary, My Brother's Bomber, um, suggests that Bollier was just was requesting to be made into a paid informant. He was asking about pay all the time, mm. saying he would inform on the Libyans. He loved hanging out with the FBI agents. There's photos of him like holding up a, a Tommy gun, like smoking mm. a cigar at the FBI mm. museum. <laughs> he was he was loving it. And then the FBI didn't make him a paid informant because the Scottish police still believed that Bollier, if this was a Libyan timer, that Bollier is a part of the conspiracy. Mm. They believe that Bollier knew these were being made into bombs. And indeed, a lot of these timers did find their way into suitcase bombs mm-hmm. uh, in the mid-80s when he actually sold them to Libya. So just to be clear, these weren't like sold to Libya right before the bombing. They mm-hmm. were sold them like 85, 86. Yeah. So Bowen testimony is, is kind of a wash, but the timer is the, really the most naughty, bothersome piece of evidence. Mm. And I've, I've kind of talked to you before about like my agnosticism on the timer right you have some people who point out just there's a really weird chain of custody issues with the timer there's mm-hmm. scratch outs on who collected it mm-hmm. um there's documentation to suggest that the timer fragment was found in 1989 and then fbi documentation to the saying it was found nine months later in 1990 mm. which doesn't usually happen but sometimes I throw up my hands and i'm like is this a really big case with just tons and tons and tons of evidence yeah uh the real i think really defense friendly bit of evidence about the timer is that when they had a metallurgist test the timer they found that the coat the manufacturing uh coating metal coating that goes on the circuit board on the timer fragment was found was made of what they call an amateur um coating of pure tin so like. A a circuit board maker who made it in a small shop. Mm -hmm. The one on the timers that were sent to Libya is an alloy of like seventy percent tin and thirty percent aluminum. Mm. So they did not come from the same batch. Interesting, because the CIA had multiple circuit boards from these timers that were sold to Libya. Now Bollier has offered you know many different paths of dubious reliability as to where this timer fragment could have come from. Could it have been from a batch that he sold to um, the Stasi right. and then it found its way into Syrian hands or PFLPGC or just on the open market?
1: Can he prove that he uses both material mixtures, that he uses both the pure tin and the tin aluminum alloy in his manufacturing processes?
0: Uh, who who knows? like he's he's very unclear right he like nowadays he contended that basically uh this timer fragment must have come from a kind of a fake or a dupe that the the CIA were in possession of his circuit boards that he had sold Bolivians and were used in bombs that were found in Africa by CIS and blah blah and that they essentially duped one of his circuit boards and uh used a very amateurish process in doing it, like hmm. a contractor. Do um, we know much about his it seems weird to do that? And then also like it'd be very hard to do the like burning right. and fragmentation. I mean maybe and just like and just so was he hand making these? Did he have a factory? Like so I think he would hand make these... prototypes right. and then send the prototype off to a factory. Okay. He's also offered himself another contradictory statement, and I saw it on the the documentary put out by um, Dornstein, where he made prototypes for the Libyans right before the bombing, something he, I don't believe he said at trial, Mm -hmm. and that they rejected these prototypes, but could one of those prototypes have been used, et cetera, et cetera. Could he have taken those prototypes that were rejected by the Libyans and sold them off to the PFLPGC through an intermediary? Yeah. Like, who fucking knows?
1: What it's I, like you sell a prototype yeah
0: it's like I, I think the best we can say is that the timer that this was a part of was not part of the batch that we know was sold to the libyans it could have been part of a different batch that was sold the libyans mm-hmm. but you can't get any consistent testimony out of bollier right uh at all it also makes me wonder like how they're going to try to identify the timer at trial in the united states because in the in this Scottish trial, they could just bring in Bolier and they could introduce all of his statements he's ever made to the police as evidence. In the U.S. law, you have you can have the right to confront the witness against right. you. So if you don't have Bolier saying this is from my Nevo circuit board, it it becomes a more complicated matter of introducing it. It's not an impossible thing. So uh, so one does this?
1: Do all these inconsistencies have anything to do? so that first trial yeah. in Camp Zeist in the netherlands where they found madrahi McGraw- mm-hmm. guilty but they did not find fema guilty was that was all this introduced at trial all these inconsistencies
0: um not all of these inconsistencies but the the central inconsistency that was introduced was Bollier admitting in their view or saying in the defense's view that all of these timers were sent to Libya. His first statement mm-hmm. was introduced, and then they cross-examined him. The prosecution cross-examined him and made him seem not credible in denying and saying, "Now, oh yeah, you sent this to other sources besides Libyans." Mm. That was what came out at trial. And my read on this is basically like Bolia doesn't know, or and also doesn't like really give a shit like what happened to the timers like at all. Mm in his his first statement he thought he was going to be on the FBI side and get paid by them right and then they didn't he was still doing business with the Libyans mm. by the time of trial so he just switched his account to kind of exonerate them and has stayed with that ever since mm. he might give a different account now because I mean who knows which Libyan government he might be doing business with right. if at all
1: right is, <laughs> it's is he still in the timer making business
0: yeah, uh, the thing okay. is too is also Mebo doesn't, and and this is something that I didn't know if it was discussed enough. Mebo doesn't just make timers, mm. right? Like they also make a, a large amount of other electronics, mm. um, radios, and that's originally what he sold to Libya is various yeah. like, radio communication devices that he sold for their military because they're mm-hmm. very precise, well calibrated, blah yeah, sure. blah blah. So was it necessarily? <laughs> From that particular right. MST thirteen timing device, uh, I I'm, I don't I wouldn't be surprised if some expert down the line is able to say this is just a really generic circuit board yeah. thing that Mebo made a bunch of, yeah, and sold all over the place. And and who knows what component of the bomb or where? I think it's fair to in. say
1: we are well and truly in the weeds.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's
1: of, of, of manufacturing and sketchy Swiss dudes who just they want to have all the Swiss steak they can with all the FBI agents they can it's a dream yeah
0: it's a dream uh the final bit of evidence and in, in this uh came in, is definitely going to come into play I think in uh the U.S. trial is uh FIMA the other defendant the air Malta guy had a journal most of it was in Arabic, but uh, conspicuously, uh, two entries were written in English so that investigators could read them. And they happen to be the most suspicious looking ones, which mm. is Abdul Bassett, the Magrahi, the defendant, is coming from Zurich. Take tags from the Maltese Airlines. And then the second one is bring the tags from the airport. And this is inferred to mean that FIMA like writing down on his to-do list. Right. Inconspicuous. English, yeah. like, hey man, don't forget you have to get the tags from Air Malta right. so that we can get this unaccompanied bag mm. somehow through three different luggage yeah. transfers and get on that final plane. So it was the rest of his journal in Arabic? or? Yeah, when I was reading the uh, the affidavit against Massoud, it said that the majority of it is in Arabic. Mm. I I've seen other sources say like, all of it, for these entries and yeah. everything, but I I think that it alternated between the two. I actually, uh, I I mean, who knows if these are actually connected? Because here's the the thing, uh, because probably the best defense McGraw he had, uh, besides the identification issues, and this was brought up at trial, was about, and I guess now really in the weeds, the ingestion of the bag, and I'll get into this more if And when we do a follow up episode, maybe closer to when there's actually something going on in the suit's case. But the McGrahy defense was able to show that at Malta Airport, um, and there's just one airport, an Air Malta run at that time ran everything, it was a mm-hmm. tiny little airport. Yeah, uh, they had had a, a, a major bloody hostage gunman mm-hmm. takeover. That had happened two years prior. And so the Maltese military was all over that airport. Who who, who did the takeover? I don't know. Hmm. (laughs) Uh, It was was like in 85 or 86. Maybe you can find out. But after this takeover, the Maltese military was all over what's called the air side of the airport. So past check-in when you're waiting for your plane or on the tarmac where the planes actually are. That was all had Maltese military all over it they instituted a whole lot of measures to make sure that unaccompanied bags don't get on the plane that's how they were going to ensure that there wasn't a bomb Mm. so at check-in every single bag was tagged with a a a printed out bag tag and it went into you know a green printing 1980s computer and that would generate the number of the total bags that were on the plane the check-in agent would then call in to air traffic control with the number. Air traffic control would not tell that number to a luggage counter on the other end who is collecting the bags and assembling them into group to be packed on the plane. That guy would hand count every bag, and the air traffic controller would take his count and see if it matched up with the count from check-in. Mm. So, how you would get an unaccompanied bag onto the air mold plane, KM180 is beyond mysterious Hmm. um they also had like a bomb sniffing device that they would go over the bags with but that's the like dubious reliability it's the late 80s okay so but to this point uh, not only has no one been able to to show how the bag could have gotten in the the only theory i've heard of that would have made sense is that there's like various cia officials who just think that every like everyone on the ground crew of malta Mm. like multiple members were like in on it Mm -hmm. like in on the terrorist attack even though the Maltese police and other intelligence agencies were apparently like wiretapping them for years after this because they couldn't figure out any other way Mm. that due to this counting system and that the bag could have gotten on the plane because you couldn't have had a person walk onto the tarmac with a badge because they would have been noticed by the ground staff and the Maltese military with machine guns mm. walking up to the bags. And even the indictment that came down or that the affidavit that was uh, meant for arraigning um, Masood on this year, you read it and it says the government does not know how the bag got on mm. at Malta. We just know it did. So McGraw's defense was essentially that it was a defense of what they call uh impossibility. Yeah. You know, the same way that uh, a guy who says he was like assaulted at a bar and like punched, uh, the defense says, like, my client does not have to does not have hands. Yeah. <laughs> it is physically impossible. Like McGraw's defense was it's impossible for him to have put on this unaccompanied bag in Malta mm-hmm. and to have it have gone all the way to Panama 3.
1: And it's hard to refute. So the Malta thing, it looks like. Um, It was the Egypt Air Flight, 1985, hijacked, uh, steered to Malta by a group calling itself Egypt Revolution,
0: but likely a front for Abu Nadal. Oh, Um, which was actually, by 88 at least, the Libya-based organization. This is 85. Yeah, so I think it's before they decamped Libya.
2: Yeah.
1: The eventually was Egyptian troops that tried to retake the plane. Uh, The raid killed 56 of the 86 passengers smoke inhalation straight bullets what have you and also some were killed by the terrorists so you can imagine they would have instituted a little bit of security best. after that yeah. and the Maltese had uh had had already had a policy of because you know they had been used for these purposes before of telling terrorists that if they they would not refuel planes until they released all hostages yeah so you know they were already taking kind of a hard line
0: yeah. So that's the evidence at trial. And based on that evidence, the judges at campsite say, you know, we don't have a lot of evidence against FEMA. This diary entry doesn't need much. I think they might have even exclude the diary entry, ultimately. And we don't believe Giacca, who's the only witness that puts FEMA in a compromising role. So they find FEMA not guilty. McGraw, mm-hmm. they find guilty largely on the basis of the identification of him as the guy who bought the clothes, mm-hmm. um, which we've shown how shaky that is. So, where does Massoud come in? Well, from the beginning, Western intelligence agencies knew that McGrahy is not a bomb building guy. He's just a guy involved in airlines mm-hmm. and presumably airline security and so on. He would be maybe an operations guy. Like maybe he carries the suitcase. Massoud, however, is known to them as an operations specialist. I don't think he just builds bombs, which is how it's kind of made out in the documentary, mm-hmm. but he does splash it, basically. In More recently in this documentary, My Brother's Bomber by Ken Dornstein, Massoud was implicated by a guy named Muspa Etter, who was a former Libyan intelligence agent residing in Germany now mm. and at the time of the documentary he's running a hospital for in the documentary, calls like says like Libyan freedom fighters oh, and I'm like Ooh, okay oh, yeah, that just sets yeah, off like you know, all of yeah, my yeah, like yeah, intelligence yeah. asset alarms um yeah. so Mustafa Etter says like oh yeah like Basud, he was here in the embassy and that's where we planned the LaBelle nightclub bombing mm. in Berlin uh blew up a nightclub that was frequented by U.S. troops a German documentary team back in the late 90s found out that, um, and this is not mentioned in the documentary, Muspah Etter was. in documentary. Yeah, not mentioned in Dornstein's documentary, but the German documentary from the 90s found out that Muspah Etter was apparently running a CIA front company in Malta in 1996. Uh-huh. So he's a CIA yeah. by this time, which makes sense being a defector from the Libyan ESO. Like, you know, they're not just like okay well you know live out your days mm. work at a food joint no they're going to use you for operational yes. purposes but the evidence that dornstein found against massoud shows that he has a number of like very suspicious movements around the time of the bombing as an operations guy so it turns out that McGrahi is not the only person who went into malta and then you know suspiciously left at the time um you know on the day of the bombing bombing happened at night left the day still within a time window that would have allowed him mm. to put a suitcase on theoretically massoud it turns out because dornstein found Massoud's passport number in the old stasi files mm-hmm. massoud also boarded a plane from malta with megrahi and went back to libya at the same time mm. so then there's even like a CIA informants report, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's from Giaca, that says that Massoud and Magrahi were seen leaving together on an Air Libya flight. The only reason that they could be here, we could speculate, is because they're here on some technical operation. Okay. So he's a technical guy. Magrahi's oper- some kind of operations yeah. guy. They're there doing some kind of espionage or operational intelligence ship
1: so so is the accusation against Massoud that he built the bomb that took down Walker Bay yes there is the possibility that it was actually the Jordanian intelligence agent just to go back to that for a minute um the the uh uh,
0: yeah although the logistics of that would be pretty weird like you would bring in Massoud to be a bomb builder like he did build bombs uh during the time when Gaddafi was resisting the various militias and factions that were seeking to overthrow Massoud yeah. was like building bombs and cars and shit right uh, so,
1: so there's two possible bomb builders for the two possible yes uh, so Chris and Massoud Massoud is kind of the uh link to the actual wherewithal to do a bomb and this places him in Malta near the time when if you believe that the bomb was placed on in, in the luggage compartment at Malta, where he would have been if he was planting it there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, that, that's, so that's that's it. a little bit of, you know, get back for the Libya-Malta theory, right? And a little bit more reliable, arguably, because of the passport number than, you know, a, a, a haberdasher's memory.
0: Yeah, and I guess the thing is, is that, and this is the problem, if the bomb didn't go on the plane at Malta, yeah, it does nothing. any of this matter? No. Like all it would show is that is exactly what the CIA informant originally said. McGrahi and Basud are together doing some kind of operation. Doesn't mean they're doing the bombing. These guys are both intelligence agents. They could have been doing any number of fucking operations. Right. Uh,
1: and Malta seems like the kind of it seems like it was an intriguing place at the time.
0: Yeah, especially for Libyans, for Libyans seeking to get around various sanctions yes. and, and so on. So, um, so we have Masoud now.
1: The Americans have Masood
0: Yeah, he's in custody in D.C. right now. How or Virginia, did I think?
1: How did they get him, and what is he saying?
0: So this gets helpful. If, if you don't mind, I'd like to back up. Okay, on, okay. And and stress one point about whether the bomb went on the plane of Malta, and maybe we'll talk about this in another episode. But there's a surprising amount of evidence that the bomb didn't go on the plane of Malta. It actually went on the plane at London Heathrow. Yes. Now, if it was a barometric activated bomb, like the kind that Chrysot made, it would have to go on the plane at Heathrow. Right. Because otherwise, plane would go up in the air, the timer would get activated. Yes.
1: And it seems like it would be harder to set a, a timer accurately to go off if it's going through multiple airports with possible delays. Possible
0: delays. It could just blow up on the ground. Like Yes. Who knows. Yes. And that's... a fair criticism I think at London Heathrow two things happened suspiciously on the night of bombing. one is there that interline luggage area, the shed where that container containing the luggage that the bomb was in was held was broken into the lock that that was on a door was cut this was noted noted by Heathrow security officers. And that's pretty suspicious all by itself. Mm. The second thing is that the luggage loader, the guy who put the luggage into the case, uh, into that container, uh, I think his name's uh, uh, Gregory Bedford. Mm-hmm. I know it's Bedford. He loaded multiple suitcases, like six or so, took his tea break because we are <laughs> in Britain. Mm-hmm. Gotta take a break for tea, mate. Get up on your sports. Go to Greg's. Yeah. Get a social roll.
1: Have a look at the page three, girls. Page six, mate page six what's on page three? Fun, huh? Oh yeah anyway so
0: so eggs. Bedford comes back after loading six suitcases and there's a maroon brown suitcase in the container and he yeah. says though so those two circumstances really make it seem like maybe someone broke in there stashed a suitcase came back put in the container at the op at the perfect time when they see The one luggage loader who's in the shed walk out. That'll be the theory. That's all I'm going to say about at this time. There's a lot more detail that goes on because they've identified like every fucking suitcase he loaded, the times they went in, everything else. But we got Masood. We got Masood. We got him, folks. We got him. (laughs) Masood even did it. So back in 2012, Masood, when this is just just after Libyan government fell. Yeah, exactly. Masood was taken into custody by a militia, Mm. almost certainly. And this is referred to in his charging document as like a Libyan law enforcement officer, Mm. uh, which is rich. Law and order, Tripoli. Yeah. CSI Tripoli. Militia style, almost militia style. Um, And in custody, he's asked, hey, Masoud, do you any operations outside of Libya? He says, sure, let me tell you about them. Now, in all probability, I think there's a little more interrogation that went on yeah. than the charging document says. Mm. But they, the government claims that they did open-ended questions and that Massoud made a spontaneous confession about his role in the Lockerbie bombing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And frankly, like when I first heard about this, I was like, oh, I mean, this kind of this probably sews it up. Mm-hmm. And these contradictions and issues with how bomb got on and identifying grahi these are all going to seem like ephemeral
2: mm-hmm.
0: right they're not going to seem as as strong right. of problems with the case as they are
2: yeah
0: and then uh when this charging document came out they actually listed a lot more specific things that came out in Masood's confession than have ever been released to the press before
2: mm-hmm.
0: and it's really weird mm-hmm.
1: It's like everything in this case.
0: Yeah, folks, you know, cases go one way. You know, there are, there's are tantalizing leads or the suggestive mm. things you can build inferences on top of. There's not supposed to be two separate tracks right. of evidence that everything runs along yeah. because they happen one way.
1: Right. Unless there's bleeding between the timelines in a quantum sense.
0: Yeah, maybe maybe we're just in like some kind of Schrodinger quantum yeah, state. Maybe and, this is a Chris going uh, back and forth between worlds where the bomb went on at Heathrow and the bomb went on at Malta.
1: I was gonna say Chris Fleming, but no, the director of Batman. What's the other one? Christopher, Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan. Chris Fleming. Very different guy. Oh God, we're in a badly
0: written Jonathan Nolan movie.
1: Very very funny man. Uh, go go look up Chris Fleming. He's my favorite comedian
2: but uh, yeah
0: speaking of comedians uh if you're looking at paul foot who i mentioned don't look up paul foot the comedian who's this bizarre british man with a mullet oh wow yeah paul foot parentheses journalist yeah not paul foot the comedian yeah. unless you want some really awful british humor yeah. so i i read through the portions of this confession and this is a confession mm-hmm. that's related relayed third hand
2: my dear
0: mm-hmm. an fbi agent interviewed the quote-unquote law enforcement officer, i.e. militia guy or whatever, Mm -hmm. who questioned Masood. And something to keep in mind with confessions is usually if a person did a thing, they know how the thing happened and it will match up in the major respects with the physical evidence, the stuff we absolutely objectively know happened. Mm -hmm. And with Masood's confession, it's steams way off at mm-hmm. a lot of points. So Masoud says that he made a bomb with 1.5 kilos of Semtex, which mm-hmm. is a pretty big explosive yield. Yes. All of the authorities on Lockerbie seem to agree that it was betwe- as little as 300 grams of Semtex mm-hmm. and maybe as much as 450 grams of Semtex. Mm. Uh, and... I believe the expert that the government actually relied on said that it punched this little hole that I talked about in the plane with about 340 grams of Semtex. It had a like, pretty precise estimate. Mm. 1.5 kilos is like almost five times, times as much. much. Yeah, four to five times a bigger as much bang. Semtex, and it's also like a much bigger volume. This is orange putty, which
2: yeah.
0: Masood and his confession referred to as dough, mm-hmm. and I'm not gonna say at the outset it's impossible, Right. But it seems really hard that you could have fit it inside the Toshiba radio. Mm-hmm. This little cubic amount of, you know, 300 grams, syntax or 340, you could fit that in. And keep in mind, you also have to fit in this like timer circuit yeah. board and all the other circuits and speakers. And the way that the prosecution said that the bomber fit this in the Toshiba radio is they took out the cassette cartridge put this in with a timer mm. and there will be like basically no space left over yeah but this is kind of burying the lead I'll admit because uh he doesn't mention the fucking radio in his confession mm. at all ah. which is the most like obvious part of the bomb it's like right. where did you put the bomb I put it in the radio it just none of that instead he says he took the dough which is how he talks about the plastic explosive mm-hmm. and the way that he evaded detection
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Is that he molded the dough around the metal parts of the suitcase, which is just the perimeter of the suitcase? Yeah. It's just not how it happened. Right. He also gives yeah, a there's no physical evidence for that. Yeah. A, and uh this is kind of the most like crucial part, I think. There's other issues which you could you could ascribe to just bad memory or transposing different events mm-hmm. over time, because this is decades ago, right? Yeah. But that one it's just like, how did you make the bomb that blew up the plane? and there's no radio like the basic thing they're accusing him of there's no radio it's a much bigger bomb it's not the bomb to the plane so masood says that he actually bought the clothing hmm. that he was the buyer at tony Gauchi's place and that he bought it on the morning of the bombing
1: does he more closely match the description
0: so i would none of us have a picture of masood from the time hmm. and i don't know masood's height he is more dark. He, he's a, a dark-skinned, like afro Libyan uh, man. Yeah. So he would more closely like match the skin tone part. Okay. But I don't know if he matches anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people who study the case say that the description really closely matches a PFLP GC mm-hmm. adjacent member named Abu Talb, who was in Malta okay. in November of that year and, and probably would. I haven't seen a picture of him. Mm-hmm. He has been given total immunity, that guy. But he says he bought it on the day of the bombing. And the thing is, is if, if everything else, if you followed everything else with this identification, it's supposed to have happened before the Christmas lights are turned on, mm-hmm. which by December 21st, the day of the bombing, they're, uh, they're on. Yeah, Um, It's supposed to have happened in the afternoon and at, at night. Mm-hmm. And when it was raining, and uh none of those are true about the morning of, but also like there's something just weird about like him. That he arrives in Malta. He sits at a hotel for three or four days. Supposedly, Magrahi McGraw- McGraw- and FIMA they come to his hotel room and tell him, "Okay, set the timer for 11 hours." And by the way, you need to buy some clothes. Mm-hmm. Even the government has a has a problem with the clothes thing because they know that their identification of Magrathi as the clothes buyer is yeah. like essential to their case that Magrathi was yes the guy um, who so, they already convicted. So they wrote down a kind of crazy solution, which is that McGrahee bought some of the clothing, in the suitcase, uh, and then apparently on the morning of the bombing was just like this ain't enough clothes. Yeah. You got to go buy some yeah, more clothes. Some clothes. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, would it would it have been enough clothes? I mean, you know, I'm trying to he see He already
0: has sense. like seven items of clothing and an umbrella from right. Mary's house stuffed in there. Yeah, it's and, an
1: it would be enough to throw off suspicion or whatever other purpose of clothes are supposed to do.
0: Yeah. Um yeah. And they would know that.
1: Yeah. Again, trying to steel man, trying to do mirror. Trying to, there.
0: uh it's 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 a really weird theory, but if I'm if I'm being like true, like steel man about this, I would say his memory's all fucked up. Yeah. He he. Maybe he didn't buy the clothes. He just knows that they're asking right. about clothes, so he told them that. Yeah, yeah. You know, another small error. He says he came to Malta, and McGrahi and Femme meet him at the airport from their own documents on the same or, you know, charging document. Their documentation shows that McGrahi wasn't in Malta mm-hmm. when when Masood arrived, so he wouldn't have been able to meet him at the airport. Yeah, he was out in uh, Czechoslovakia, Switzerland. Okay, but then he supposedly does this all on. The day of the bombing, which is he meets Macrae at 7 a.m. sharp. He's told by McGraw he set the timer for 11 hours. Um, This would we know that the bomb exploded at 7:03 mm-hmm. p.m. Yes, on the 21st. So that would put the 11-hour timer starting at 8:03 a.m. Yeah. So apparently he like is at the hotel, sets the timer at 8:03 a.m., goes and buys some clothes, mm-hmm. or maybe let's just get rid of that. And yeah. he doesn't buy the clothes. Yeah. Takes a taxi to the airport, and he gets to the airport in time for the 8:15 a.m. to 9:15 a.m. check-in for the Air Malta flight. Drops off the suitcase with Fima, who met him at a pre-instructed point, point. and then it says that Fima takes the bag and walks behind the desk where the Air Malta employees are and puts it in the scanner.
1: Right, which is not normally how it works, right? Normally, the employees do that. I believe there
0: was no scanner at um, the Malta airport at the oh, time, for right. one thing. But also, he said they, uh, I mean, they must have asked him, like, how did the bag get through? Because right. the thing that everyone wants to know is how the fuck did this bag get on? Yeah. What means did you use to get it on? And he just says, FIMA put a tag for an American airline on there and then hmm. put it on the conveyor belt. Hmm. So, how would it get on the Air Malta flight?
1: Right. Yeah. Because a conveyor belt would be taking the luggage
0: and how did it evade the count right like these are still this doesn't answer anything no like the best i can figure is like you have to believe that some air malta employee was in on it and like deliberately messed the count and another one also was in on it and Mm -hmm. also messed up the count and that they somehow like also paid another employee Mm -hmm. because they don't actually know what role they're going to have on the day of the flight right because they do random assignments so so it seems to me
1: so so I the the answers actually seem like they would be pretty obvious to our listeners but just to go through them uh why would Masood uh tell this story why wouldn't he uh proclaim his innocence
0: um because he's in the custody of a, a ruthless right. that wants to kill him and then he's for in the custody... being an enemy
1: of the people right and then he's in the custody of the Americans uh you know the guys who ran you know Guantanamo
2: yeah
0: now um I think it's possible actually that regardless of what he actually did Massoud might just fold yeah and cooperate with mm-hmm. the U.S authorities he might cut out a plea because he's 71 years old right his whole family's back in Libya mm-hmm. in the half that is controlled by the U.S back government
2: yeah
0: uh, the Viva government and also he's not even the main guy that the U.S wanted they wanted Sanusi, the head of Libya and Right. uh ESO at the time. Yeah. And Senussi is still in Libya. Uh-huh. And my understanding is that the Libyan government had plans to rendition him out of the country the way that they did Massoud, uh-huh. but that his backers are powerful enough that they knew that they could make the south of the country even more ungovernable mm. if they were to seize him. Yeah. And and I mean there's just an aspect here of, of just this is a case where like the narratives that came out of it really came from this era where the US was on this like revanchist mm. imperial war path of just picking fights. Right. Especially with bombs. <laughs> you
1: know, with 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 people who couldn't that effectively hit back.
0: Yeah, like exactly. They were trying to just find a way. Not saying boy. that
1: Libyans are bombs, just you know, it's a boxing metaphor. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, and with this expanding role or expanding imperial role in the world, you know, you also add, as Alfred McCoy points out, the attempt to kind of cover the or project in the global space, also a, a more invisible layer of covert action, mm. which includes people like Yeah, There's a very big incentive here to think that it's the Libyans, even if you're an honest investigator, because the alternative is that one of your assets built the bomb yes. that killed 190 americans yeah and,
1: and uh you know and uh, uh we don't want to have blowback on our hands uh you know we don't we we don't want to start imagining that our assets might turn against us
0: yeah i mean it, any way you cut the narrative this case though it, it is blowback yeah right either for engaging in a in a tit for tat with libya right. and they well I mean it's revenge sh- yeah
1: I meant specifically the type of blowback which isn't what Chalmers Johnson meant would he when right the term but the specific type of blowback like we develop these assets and then they turn on us which might have been the case with the Jordanian bomb maker it definitely
0: yeah, they may have been a triple agent who was just like I like committed to the cause the whole time right. or committed to making two million dollars
1: right and you know we have seen other you know like most famously. The Afghan Mujahideen and
0: you know Osama bin Laden. Yeah. So it, there's a there's a less a cunning of history than just like a stupid cunning of history yeah. where like the US just builds assets and builds them in in such a way that it its chief like imperial fighting is fighting the assets that it put yes. out there, which you know is the, probably the story of the last thirty years. Mm. Um, it might be the story here too, but. In all humility, we don't know. I do think that I can say that there are serious doubts mm. and oddities with this case. This is not a normal case. No. And you would think for the biggest mass murder of Americans before 9-11, that this would be a straightforward case. Right. If they act like it's a straightforward case. It's very much not. Right. And that's that's prior to and before you get into any conspiracy theorizing, it's conspiracy mm-hmm. either way, right. but you would think they'd be able to identify with some certainty who did it. And and I don't mean to cast any aspersion it, uh, even on, on Ken Dornstein, not just because he lost his brother, but because I, I think it's clear from the documentary, he's built relationships with all the investigators, mm-hmm. including CIA, operations people, um, who no doubt have told him, like, we have the goods you can't put yeah. everything in a legal proceeding, right yeah because you'll reveal your sources but mm-hmm. trust us we have the goods yeah and mm-hmm. the problem with believing that kind of perfect secret evidence that's been true in the dreyfus mm-hmm. affair mm-hmm. Host, for example, is it doesn't get tested in right. the open field of trials yes, there's so, no yeah it, it's a black box so you never know if it's actually correct because it hasn't seen been seen by other eyes it's been seen by your investigators and your investigators only right so I guess that's where i'll leave this one yep a murk
1: of evidence a murk of you know geopolitics and parapolitics the usual the usual uh a people's history of violence type of stuff
0: and if there's a trial we'll be there oh yeah run row baby definitely all right uh thank you again listeners uh, i'm going to be making some changes soon to some of the patreon tier benefits and our RSS feed should be completely liberated from uh, the despicable uh, black site tyranny um, of a casting. You should be able to copy paste yeah. into whatever your podcast app is. But if it's still not working, go ahead and contact me. And also if you had any questions yeah. or any information about the podcast. Denounce us, send us we, denunciations. You know, we're happy to engage. Yeah. Uh, thanks again, folks. Thanks. thanks, everybody. Have a good night. Bye now. See okay. you next time.